Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 13. We'll cover from chapter 13 through chapter 19 this evening, and we'll pray and we'll ask God's blessing on our Bible study. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the treasures that we find in it. Tonight, Lord, as we study your word, we pray that you'll bless the teaching of the scriptures. Lord, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. We pray, Lord, wherever these words fall, on the ears of those that are here tonight, on our radio audience, Lord, those that listen through the radio or listen on the internet, Lord, I pray that wherever these words are heard, Lord, that they would speak to our hearts. They would cut right to the quick of our hearts, Lord, and challenge us to walk by faith. They'll encourage us, Lord, to seek your wisdom in all areas of our lives. So speak to us tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start Joshua 13 in Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28 verse 21 reads, For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. In the valley of Gibeon, God displayed his awesome work, his unusual act. We studied it in Joshua chapter 10. It's not every day the sun and moon stand still in their march across the sky. God may have worked directly by his own hand to produce the phenomena, or he might have employed some celestial mechanics. Perhaps God engineered a planetary flyby or maybe a comet sweeping through the earth's atmosphere. Either way, it was an awesome work. An unusual act. Imagine God grabbing an aimless comet out of deep space and directing it its trajectory toward the earth at the exact moment to coincide with Joshua's prayer. It was an unusual act, an awesome work. Yet tonight's chapters detail a more normal work, a very common act. I've discovered that Christian life is a combination of both, of the unusual and the common. At times, God works in miraculous, stupendous ways, but he also calls us to certain basic duties. The Christian life is a combination of God's unusual acts and our common acts. Here, General Joshua leaves behind his thrilling battles, his daring maneuvers, his colossal triumphs, and he embroils himself in a more mundane work. He picks up his transit and range rod, And he does the routine job of a surveyor. Joshua's job in chapters 13 to 24 is to divide the land among the tribes of Israel. Reminds me of the farmer who was tired of paying exorbitant property taxes. The taxes were driving him out of business, and so he decided to sell his farm. One day he was approached by a man who wanted to see the boundaries of his property. The farmer asked, are you a buyer or a tax assessor? (laughs) Property lines, boundary markers, a good survey, these are important items. Though all the earth belongs to God, land allotment was and still is an important issue in Israel. Two passages in Deuteronomy prove the point. Deuteronomy 19 verse 14 tells us, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in your inheritance which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. God commanded respect for property markers and boundaries. Deuteronomy 27, 17 also says, 
Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people said, Amen. Several years ago, I read of a family who was shot. Six people in this family were shot to death in their home. It turns out they were murdered by their next-door neighbor over a boundary dispute. The neighbor gunned down the whole family after the dead repositioned the survey pen. Even today, people take property ownership very, very seriously. And the last half of Joshua records the division of the land. This to us to avoid such disputes as I've described. I guess you could say tonight we're going to cover a lot of ground in our study. Well, Joshua chapter 13 verse 1 begins. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains, all the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Gershurites from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron northward, which is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, and the Akronites, also the Avites. Sadly, these cities were never fully conquered by Israel. Five of these cities later became the five Philistine strongholds, Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Verse 4 continues the land still inhabited by the Canaanites. From the south, all the land of the Canaanites and the Mirarah, which belongs to the Sidonians as far as Aphek, to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gibelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, that is, toward the east. From Baal Gad below Mount Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamoth, all the inhabitants of the mountains, from Lebanon as far as the brook Mezerfroth, and all the Sidonians, all along the outer ring of the land of Canaan, along the outer ring of these pagan nations, pagans were still entrenched. They were still holding on, not giving up their land. But God says, them I will drive out from before the children of Israel, only divided by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Evidently, Joshua's military campaigns had conquered the bulk of the land of Canaan. But there were still pockets of resistance here and there, as I said, along the fringes. The Philistines held on to the southwest area along the Mediterranean coast. The Canaanites lived in the south, bordering the wilderness. The Gibelites occupied an area just south of Mount Hermon, north of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sidonians lived in what is today southern Lebanon along the coast. As the Lord told Joshua in verse 1, there remains very much land yet to be possessed. God knew the best way to motivate the tribes of Israel was to drive out the remaining Canaanites, was to go ahead and divvy up the land to the different tribes. If an Israelite tribe knew their borders, it would give them the incentive to take up arms and fight to occupy all that belonged to them. Notice too God's words in verse 6. Divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. The land was Israel's inheritance. God promised a chunk of land to the nation's forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then their heirs. The land of Israel, or in Hebrew, Ertz Israel, was God's gift to his people. 
This is why the land is so important to Israelis today. It's more than a political bargaining chip. To give up Gaza or the West Bank or the Golan Heights would be to reject a present God intended especially for them. It's spiritually and morally wrong to give up their land. It's the sad tale of history that the Hebrews never fully possessed the land that God promised them. After Joshua, the Israelis found compromise, an easier way to deal with the pagans than conquest. A policy of tolerance replaced faith and courage. And yet the Bible teaches us that one day Israel will possess all of the land that God has promised them. Complete occupation is still in their future. In fact, Obadiah 17 affirms it. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And I think that's a good motto for our Christian lives. Do we fully possess our possessions? We've been given all spiritual blessings in Christ, yet are we possessing all our possessions? If we are, why does our life lack power over temptation and boldness in our witness and joy in our despair? Most of us are living far below our privileges. Like Israel of old, we need to rise up by faith and possess our possessions. We need to lay hold of all that's ours in Christ. Well, verse 7 tells us, Now therefore divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. What is called today the West Bank or the promised land west of the Jordan River was to be allocated to nine and a half of Israel's 12 tribes. Verse 8 tells us, With the other half tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them. Now remember, in Numbers chapters 32, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh asked Moses if they could settle on the east bank of the Jordan River. They saw the lush fields, and they figured it would make for perfect grazing for their cattle. At first, Moses refused their request. He thought they were trying to shirk their responsibility to fight with their brothers and conquer Canaan. But they assured Moses that they would still be willing to go to battle. They would fight alongside the other tribes until the enemy was defeated. Then they would return to the pastures east of the Jordan. In the remainder of chapter 13, Joshua reminds them of their boundaries. Verse 9, from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, east of the Dead Sea, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Medabah, as far as Debon, all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, And notice the description now is moving northward. As far as the border of the children of Ammon, Gilead, and the border of the Gershurites and the Machathites, all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan, as far as Salka, all the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth in Edria, who remained of the remnant of the giants. For Moses had defeated and cast out these, Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Gershaites or the Machathites, but the Gershaites and the Machathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. Sadly, the pagans were allowed to remain among God's people, and this proved to be a corrupting influence. It's interesting, until this last March, these names were just names to me. I had little appreciation for the scenery in my mind. But on our recent trip to Israel, we spent three days in the country of Jordan. From Amman, we visited these various places. 
They were as much God's promised land as the territory west of the Jordan. We enjoyed seeing these sites and getting a visual of them in our minds. Verse 14, only to the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. The Levites were the one tribe that received no territory. Their inheritance was the administration of the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and the worship of the temple. Later in Joshua, we'll see that God establishes specific cities throughout the land for the Levites to dwell in. In verses 15 to 23, borders are staked out for the half-tribe of Reuben that settled east of the Jordan. They occupied the land east and a bit north of the Dead Sea. Verses 24 to 28 mark off boundaries for the tribe of Gad. They inherited the land of the Ammonites, east of the Jordan River. The modern city of Ammon, the capital of the kingdom of Jordan, derives its name from the Ammonites. Verse 27 notes Gad's northern border, the edge of the Sea of Chinnereth, on the other side of the Jordan eastward. This was another name for the Sea of Galilee. Chinnereth means harp, and when you view the lake from above... It has a definite harp shape. Verse 29 to 32 pinpoint the boundaries for the last half of Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh that settled to the east and northeast of the Sea of Galilee in the land of Bashan. And verse 33 makes this point, but the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance as he had said to them. We learn later the decision to settle outside the promised land for these two and a half tribes proved to be fatal. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, the two and a half tribes fall victim to idolatry and they were first to be scattered by the Assyrians. Apparently the Jordan River was a needed wall of protection both militarily and spiritually that the short-sighted tribes decided to neglect. And likewise, when we settle for second best rather than go on with God for all he has for us. Whenever we settle for second best, we make ourselves vulnerable to danger and temptation. Sometimes we get right to the brink of blessing. Then because it seems hard, because it requires more faith, we pull up short. Don't do that. Press on. Enter into all God's goodness. Chapter 14 begins. These are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine tribes and the half tribe. This amounted to a raffle. The only difference is that God was the one divinely controlling this lottery. We're told, for Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half tribe on the other side of the Jordan, but to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they gave no part to the Levites in the land except cities to dwell in with their common lands for their livestock and their property. Now here Joshua explains a detail that comes up again and again when we study Israel's history. The Bible always speaks of Israel as having 12 tribes. The problem, though, is that what 12 tribes? And sometimes the list of the 12 tribes varies. 
At times, the 12 tribes include Joseph and Levi. But in the allocation of the land here, Joseph receives a double portion. Thus, his two sons take his place, Manasseh and Ephraim. Both of them get an allocation of land. That makes 13 tribes, though. But since Levi's inheritance is the Lord, not the land, Levi gets left out. Thus, Israel minus Joseph plus Manasseh and Ephraim minus Levi equals 12 tribes. Israel is always presented as 12 tribes, but often the makeup of those tribes varies. Well, verse 5 tells us, As the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. And chapters 15 to 19 divvies up the territory on the west bank of the Jordan River. But first, guess who steps out of the crowd to take possession of the inaugural parcel? Notice verse 6. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal and Caleb. Hey, here's Caleb, Joshua's old friend. Remember, of the three million Hebrews who crossed the Jordan River, only Joshua and Caleb were the two of the Exodus generation who were allowed to enter the promised land. They were among the ten spies that Moses sent to spy out the land. And only Joshua and Caleb, remember, brought back a positive report. These were men of faith. God would win the victory if the people just pushed forward. They wanted to possess God's promises. Three times in chapter 14, we're told Caleb wholly followed the Lord. Caleb was no compromise. No partial obedience for Caleb. No half-hearted devotion for this man. Well, we're told Caleb, the son of Jephunai, Jephunai, can you, can you, you can fix all this, can't you? Okay. All right. Caleb, the son of Jephunai, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. In other words, they frightened them. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. As he said, these 45 years... Ever since the Lord spoke the word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. This is wonderful. Get this picture. Caleb is 85. For the last 20 years he's been eligible for social security. But rather than assisted living, he's ready to fight. He wants to go out and conquer. Rather than endure at all, he's ready to leave it all on the battlefield. I love what this old geezer says in verse 12. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there. The Anakim were the giants. And that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me. And I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Four and a half decades earlier, Caleb assured his brothers that God would give them the victory over these giants. 
Now he's still chomping at the bit to fight a few giants and prove God's ability, God's faithfulness to his promises. He asked Joshua to give him Hebron, home of the Anakim. Rather than ask for a corner room in the nursing home, play bingo with the elderly ladies, Caleb wants to scrap with giants. He wants a challenge. His faith needs a godly goal to tackle. Give him a few giants. Hey, if you're looking for the fountain of youth, here's the best way to stay young. Ask God for a kingdom cause to throw yourself into. Seek God's glory. You'll be getting closer to heaven rather than to the grave. Well, verse 13 tells us, And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because, and he says it again, he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Caleb took the land that had been named after a giant and now calls it Hebron. This name Hebron, it means communion. And the sweetest communion, the richest fellowship with Jesus, the greatest awareness of his presence and power is found in a foxhole fighting a battle for God. Well, chapter 15 begins. So this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families. The first allocation of land west of the Jordan now goes to Judah. The border of Edom at the wilderness of Zin southward was the extreme southern boundary. And their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea from the bay that faces southward. Verses 3 through 4 trace the southern border. Verse 5, the eastern border was the Dead Sea up to the mouth of the Jordan. And then according to verse 8, the northern property line took in the valley of the son of Hinnom to the southern slope of the Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. The holy city of Jerusalem was now part of the territory belonging to the tribe of Judah. Verse 9 continues to trace the northern boundary. Verse 12 tells us that the western boundary was the coastline of the great sea, that is the Mediterranean. Verse 13, now to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a share among the children of Judah. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely, Kirath Arba, which is Hebron. Remember, Arba was the father of Anak. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Shishai, Ahimon, and Talmai, the children of Anak. An 85-year-old Caleb, he tackles three giants and he drives them out of the land God gives him. <laughs> How about that? It's been said of Caleb, a faith that never wavered produced a strength that never weakened. Caleb was feisty to the end. I imagine when we get to heaven, we'll probably see Caleb and John Wayne duking it out just for fun. Old Caleb might still be looking for a giant to fight. Well, verse 15 says of Caleb, Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debir. Formerly the name of Debir was Kirath-Zephyr. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kirath-Zephyr and takes it, to him I will give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. Now Caleb was not just brave, he was a leader. And he felt a responsibility to pass on his courageous spirit and encourage younger Hebrew men to follow in his footsteps and also fight battles for God. As an incentive, 
Caleb decides to give in marriage his beautiful daughter to any guy willing to obey the Lord. The name Aksa means to tinkle. It probably referred to the anklets worn, on Oriental, worn by Oriental women. And it could have implied that Caleb's little girl was quite a dancer. She would tinkle an anklet bracelet. Here was the deal. Win a victory for God by tangling with a giant, and you would come home to Aksa, tinkling in her bracelets. Well, verse 17. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as wife. Othniel was Caleb's nephew and became his son-in-law. We're going to learn later that he was Israel's very first judge. Now it was so when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Now it seems that Aksa also had ambition to inherit the land. So she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? She answered, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And so he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. It's ironic, Caleb was a giant killer, but it seems his little girl had him wrapped right around her little finger. He gives her a field, and then she asks for a spring, and then he ends up giving her two, the upper and the lower spring. Caleb had a weakness. He couldn't say no to his little girl. <laughs> he probably bought her ice cream at Brewster's whenever she asked. Now, I have no firsthand knowledge of this problem, but I've heard this is what doting dads do. Well, the remainder of chapter 15 lists the cities of Judah, and you'll find 106 different cities. Verse 63, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Jerusalem will remain a Jebusite city for the next 400 years until the armies of King David make Jerusalem Israel's capital city. Chapter 16. <clears throat> the lot fell to the children of Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho, to the waters of Jericho on the east, to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel. Now here are the borders of Joseph, here are the borders of Joseph's other son, Ephraim. The mountains of Samaria, the heart of Israel, went to Ephraim. The Ephraimites possessed a very famous city known as Shiloh. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant will rest in the tabernacle at Shiloh for nearly 350 years. Verse 10, And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. Again, it's sad, but the children of Israel, these Ephraimites, fell short of total victory. The best they could do was to conscript their enemy as indentured servants. Chapter 17 marks out the territory of the remaining half-tribe of Manasseh. Joseph's oldest son received the land north of Ephraim, which included the famous Hebrew city of Shechem. Verse 1, there was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead. Because he was a man of war, therefore he was given Gilead in Bashan. And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. And those families are listed. We get to verse 3. But Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, 
The son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hagla, what a girl's name, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they came near before Eleazar the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, and before the rulers, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Now in Oriental cultures, property was passed down from fathers to sons, not fathers to daughters. And Moses could have assumed here that the custom of the day should rule. He could have given a ruling that would acknowledge the customs. He would have assumed, could have assumed that what was customary was God's will. But Moses was a good leader because he kept an open mind. And rather than just assume, he consulted the Lord. And here, God ruled against custom in favor of the girls. Godly men need to remember that God has daughters, not just sons. Just because God ordains male leadership at home and at church, it doesn't mean that his daughters have no rights. Here, Joshua carries out his predecessor's command. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them, that is the girls, an inheritance among their father's brothers. Verse 5, ten shares fell to Manasseh besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons. And the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead, and the territory of Manasseh was from Asher to Michmathoth, that lies east of Shechem, and the border went along south to the inhabitants of Tapua, and on and on it goes. West Bank Manasseh was north of Ephraim. Westward it stretched to the Mediterranean. It was south of Asher. It was west of Issachar. Its territory included the lower Galilee, the valley of Jezreel, and the city of Megiddo. Verse 12. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities. But the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. Apparently the Canaanites were more determined to squat than the Israelites were to strike. Well, it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. It was said of Ephraim and Manasseh, they did not drive out the Canaanites. Rather than rise up and make an all-out effort to rid themselves of the enemy, they lacked courage. They were content to coexist, and they settled for a partial victory. Let's not do the same. And in verse 14, they have the nerve to complain about their meager allocation to Joshua. Hey, they're both Joseph's boys. They deserve a larger territory, more commiserate with their honorable status. Notice their gripe. Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only a lot and one share to inherit, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? Joshua's answer gets sarcastic. He says, If you are a great people, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for your, yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. Hey, if you want more land, then take it from the perverted parasites, the pagans there, and the giants. 
Why would God give you more land when you're not possessing all the land that he's already given you? And guys, we can be just like Ephraim and Manasseh. See, we want more opportunity to serve the Lord. We want a larger ministry. While at the same time, we're not taking advantage of the opportunities we've been given. We think we're a great people. Oh, I've got talent. I'm not getting the platform to minister that my talent deserves. I should be leading worship instead of this guy, Pastor Matt. Or I should be teaching on Sundays rather than old Pastor Sandy. Hey, but you've been asked to teach Sunday school. Why haven't you started? You could sing songs for kids on Wednesday nights. Why are you putting it off? Hey, if you really wanted to serve the Lord, you could come up on Saturdays and help clean the church, grab a brush and scrub some toilets, or maybe serve as an usher, or even help with backpack buddies. Don't ask for more territory until you fully possess all that you've been given. When there are no more giants in the land you currently occupy, then we'll talk about expanding your territory. Faithfulness to God begins right where you're at. Verse 16, But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both of those who are of Bashan and its towns and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. They were cramped in the hills while the Canaanites enjoyed the lush, fertile farmland in the valley. Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not have only one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooded, you shall cut it down, and its farthest extent shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Joshua encourages Joseph's sons. Their land will expand as their faith stretches. And I think this is God's word to us tonight. If you want more in your Christian life, more consistency, more victory over temptation, more power, more joy, more peace, more harmony in your home, more love for others, then stop griping about what you lack. Work on building up your faith. Take heed to your Bible. Stretch your faith. Then watch the blessings grow. Chapter 18. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them, but there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Pick out from among you three men from each tribe, and I will send them. They shall rise and go through the land, survey it according to their inheritance, and come back to me, and they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in their territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory on the north. But shall therefore, you shall therefore survey the land in seven parts, and bring the survey here to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. Twenty-one representatives were to walk the remaining land and survey it into seven parcels. They were to bring the plats back to Joshua, and he would make the assignments. In verses 11 to 28, Benjamin receives the track of land between Ephraim and Judah. Benjamin stretched from the northern suburbs of Jerusalem to Bethel. 
Chapter 19, the second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. And their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. Simeon receives the southernmost section of Judah. Beersheba was a famous city within the borders of Simeon. Apparently, there was land that was co-occupied by both Simeon and Judah. Verse 9 explains this strange arrangement. The inheritance of the children of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah. For the share of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. Apparently, the original allotment was larger than Judah could fully occupy. Thus, an adjustment needed to be made. And to me, this is so interesting. It sheds light on us discerning God's will. This implies that God's will isn't always a voice from heaven, a divine mandate written in stone. No, at times it takes some sorting out, some practical concessions, logic and horse sense, not just dreams and vision, help us discern God's direction. Verse 10, the third lot came out for the children of Zebulun, according to their families. Zebulun receives the heart of Galilee. Jesus' hometown of Nazareth was inside the territory allotted to the tribe of Zebulun. Notice verse 15 lists one of the cities of Zebulun as Bethlehem. Hey, this was another Bethlehem, not the birthplace of Jesus. It was a city in northern Israel. Matthew 2 verse 1, when it mentions the genealogy of Jesus, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Notice Matthew had to specify. Bethlehem of Judea. The reason is there was another Bethlehem further north in Zebulun. Verse 17, the fourth lot came out to Issachar. The land of Issachar stretched out across the lower Galilee, just west of the Jordan River. It included the southwest shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. The later Roman city of Tiberias was in the territory of Issachar. Verse 24, the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher. Their territory was along the Mediterranean coast, north toward the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Asher's territory stretched southeast to Mount Carmel. Verse 32, the sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali. The tribe of Naphtali was allotted the territory north of the Sea of Galilee toward Mount Hermon. Naphtali was north of Zebulun and east of Asher. Today, its territory borders on southern Lebanon, the famous city of Hazor, was within Naphtali's borders. The southeastern boundary was the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus chose his disciples and performed many of his miracles. In fact, Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, speaks of Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying. Matthew goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region, and shadow of death, light has dawned. God forever blessed the territory of Naphtali by allowing it to host a majority of the ministry of Jesus. Well, verse 40, the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan. 
Dan was given a strip of land between Ephraim and Judah. It was west of Benjamin toward the Mediterranean coast. Today it would include Tel Aviv. The port of Joppa was also in the tribe of Dan. This was where Jonah took a boat to Tarshish. It's where a kosher Peter received a vision from God, letting him know that Gentiles could join God's family. The territory of Dan included Philistine country. In fact, the Philistine slayer, Samson, was a Danite. But notice verse 47. And the border of the children of Dan went beyond these, because the children of Dan went up to fight against Leshem and took it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword, took possession of it, and dwelt in it. They called Leshem Dan after the name of Dan, their father. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, these cities with their villages. You see, the Danites tired. They gave up trying to drive out the Philistines, and they started looking for land elsewhere. Many believe Leshem was also Laish. It was the same Canaanite city in the extreme north of Israel. We'll read later how a war party from Dan goes out and fights against Laish and colonizes it as a new home for Dan. Judges 18 tells the story. You see, Dan ended up with two parcels along the Mediterranean south by the port of Joppa, but also around the town of Laish or Leshem in the north. Now, when they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders... The children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. God's faithful servant, Joshua, receives his inheritance last. God's people reward General Joshua for his years of faithful service. We're told, according to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for, Timnath Zerah, in the mountains of Ephraim. And he built the city and dwelt in it. Joshua lived a truly amazing life. It began in the slave pits of Egypt, and it ended on the mountains of Ephraim. In between, perhaps no set of human eyes has seen more of God's miracles than Joshua. Verse 51 closes. These were the inheritance, inheritances which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so they made an end of dividing the country. And there we have Joshua 13 through 19. 